if you can identify with Eden's story about getting sunburned. We all know better, don't we? But we've all been there. When I was a teenager, one night I fell asleep under a sun lamp. You've heard of the Blue Man Group? I could have been a member of the Red Man Group. It's awful. As we continue our series on spiritual warfare, we do so with the premise that there really is a war. There really is a battle, not only just for the souls, but for the lives of men and women, boys and girls, all over the world. And we need to learn and understand as much as we can about the tactics of the enemy, just as Jesus himself said that the thief has come to steal and kill and destroy. Now, we're not looking for a demon behind every bush, but we also will not stick our heads in the sand like an ostrich. When you stick your head in the sand, you're leaving the world a very big target. So one of the primary ways that people both outside of the faith and even those inside the faith of Christianity can be crippled and destroyed is in the area of our identity. That's one of the places that Satan really attacks us. Our nation, if you haven't noticed, is in an identity crisis. The question of who am I is front and center on the front burner of the news, of uh, all of the entertainment industry, of music. It's everywhere in our culture every day. Who am I? Planned Parenthood recently posted pictures of over a dozen flags representing 12, over 12 gender identities. Not to be outdone, Northwestern University, they created a graphic that names 40 different gender identities. Singer and actress Demi Lovato has claimed five different identities during the la in each of the last five years. And she's only 30 years old. Now, gender identity is just a small part of the overall identity crisis. But here's the question, who do you believe you really are? If we do not see God the way He is, and if we do not see ourselves the way we are, according to the way God sees us, it will cripple us. And it will keep us from experiencing our deepest fulfillment and potential. So today I want to focus on our identity in Christ. One of the best passages of Scripture that describes who we were before we came to Christ, who we are now that we have come to Christ, and where we are is in Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. First of all, we're going to look at who we were. Verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So he starts out by saying, 
and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Bam! Very direct news. You were dead. This is the starting place for every person because we were born into sin. And because we were born into sin, we've all chosen to sin. So what was this spiritual death like? Well, it's about being controlled by our enemies. And he elaborates in these, in these verses here where Paul clearly outlines the three deadly enemies which are the world, the devil, and the flesh. That is, these three enemies of the world, the devil, and the flesh that constantly work in unison with each other to deceive us and to tempt us to sin. Of the world, it says in, in verse 1, in the trespasses and sins which you once walked following the course of this world. Now, there are three sets of threes here. The first set is the three enemies, the world, the devil, and the flesh. The second set is there's three ways that the term world is used in the Scripture. The first way the world is used is planet Earth. That's not what this is talking about. The second way is the people in the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's not what it's talking about here either. But there's a third way, and it is a system, a world system, that is used to draw us away from God. It, it is used to, 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 to describe this place, to tempt us to find our comfort and our fulfillment in something other than our relationship with God. And that's the way Paul is using this term here, world. Now, the world system is anything that we would look to in order to meet the deepest needs of our lives that were only designed to be met by God. And then there is a third group of three that we see here, and that is that there are three ways that the world manifests itself in our lives. It says in 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, three things, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now, the desires of the flesh would be sensuality, anything that appeals to the five senses. The motto is, if it feels good, do it. One lady was driving one day. She came up behind a car, had a bumper sticker that said, if it feels good, do it. And she said, I just wanted to slam right into the back of that car and then get out and say, I don't know, mister, it just felt good. And then there is the second, uh, the second area, and that is materialism, the desire of the eyes. Retail therapy, stuff, possessions, clothes, cars, houses, money, bank accounts, anything that we just love to collect. The motto of materialism is get all you can, can all you get, sit on the lid, and poison the rest. And then the last one is the pride of life. Pride, ego, superiority, achievement, accolades, admiration. Being the best or, getting, or being better. I think a good motto for pride is the, that uh, famous song in Annie Get Your Gun. Anything you can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you. Comparison to others. You know, anytime you compare yourself to others... 
it's going to be an end up losing uh, being a, a losing proposition because if, if you do that and you think you're better than them and you're going to be filled with pride and if you think they're better than you then you're going to be depressed you're going to lose either way but what we see here is that if we don't measure up then that pride can manifest itself in bitterness and resentment that we're less than we think we deserve to be. Now notice, it says here, all that is in the world, every sin you commit, could be listed under one of these three categories. Of the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, or the boastful pride of life. And I think each one of us may struggle more with one of those three areas than the other two. Which one is your greatest struggle? Sensuality, materialism, or pride? Now, there's a second enemy who controls those who are dead in their sins, and it is the devil himself. It says in verse 2, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Satan himself is like a roaring lion, always seeking whom he may devour. Satan is a real being and is never to be taken lightly since the beginning of mankind, he's always used the same tools. He uses the tools of temptation, condemnation, accusation, and deception. And Satan is so sinister. He tempts and tempts and tempts and tempts, and you finally give in, and then as soon as you give in, he starts condemning you and accusing you. Who in the world do you think you are? You call yourself a Christian, and you did something like that? Don't fool yourself. And so that's the way it is. And then we see that deception, you know, Satan deceives us. And the way he does that is by placing thoughts in our minds that are lies, they are false beliefs, but we think they're our thoughts. When Satan speaks to me, he speaks to me in a Western Carolina accent. <laughs> and we see here that in deception, you know when you're being deceived. I mean, you know when you're being tempted. You know when you're being accused. You know when you're being condemned. But you don't know when you're being deceived. It's that, it's that sinister. But then the last characteristic of spiritual death is, is the flesh. It says in verse 3, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind this is the inner principle of the old nature it says we were underline the word were past tense by nature children of wrath it was our identity it was our old nature we sinned because we had to that's the that's who you were and that's who i was and it is who every person on the planet is apart from the saving grace of god but then a miracle happened. Notice what it says in verse 4. But God. This is the greatest contrast in the history of mankind. But God. But God is the greatest interception. But God is the greatest rescue. But God is the greatest intervention. But God is the greatest liberation in the history of the universe. Praise God. We can say, but God did something miraculous in my life. And the next verses describe who we are 
now that God has caused our dead bones to live again. Let's look at who we are now. I want to say, I want to just preface this by saying, my goal is not to give you a positive mental attitude. My goal is not to build up your self-esteem. It is simply to help all of us understand what the Bible says about who we are, no more, no less. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. While we were still dead in our sins, God poured out his rich mercy upon us with such a great, great love. I love Romans 5, 5. It says, The love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. That's an incredible verse. That term poured out is translated flash flooded. Your heart has been flash flooded with the love of God. Incredible. You know, I've always thought of flash floods as anything that, it's always something that does damage. But there's also some beautiful, beautiful things. After the service today, Marilee Bush came up to me and she showed me pictures of a box canyon that they went into and it was created out of flash floods. And I, it was some of the most breathtaking, spectacular pictures I've ever seen of, of what's, what you can find in nature. And it was created out of flash. Our hearts have been flash flooded with the love of God. That's who he is. That's what he's done for us. And how did that work? The Holy Spirit began to do a work of conviction in our hearts and began to convict us of our need for a Savior. And then he sent us a witness. And in that witness, he began taking off the blinders from our eyes that, that were blinding us from seeing the beauty of who Jesus is in the gospel. And it's amazing how you can have a university professor who cannot see the gospel, and yet a four-year-old child can. It has to be revealed. He takes the blinders off. Then he reveals the truth of the gospel. He leads us into truth. And then it says that the kindness of the Lord leads us to repentance. So we come to him in brokenness, confession, and repentance. We believe in the truth of the gospel, of what Jesus did in his death, burial, and resurrection. And then the Holy Spirit gives us the gift of faith. And we believe. And then, and then when we believe, he breathes the breath of life into us and we're regenerated and we're born again, born again spiritually. This is the new life that he has given us. And at that moment, everything changed. You received a new life, a new identity, a new heredity. You became a totally new person. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things are new. Now, if old things have passed away and all things are new, what was it that passed away? It was your old nature. How do we know this? Look at Romans 6, 6. He says here, we know that our old self, our old nature, our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Your old nature, your old self was crucified with Christ, past tense. Now we've heard the teaching that the old nature is still alive and well and the old nature and the new nature are always 
fighting with each other and and uh, sometimes the old nature wins, sometimes the new nature wins, and they've used the uh, illustration of the old, dirty, mongrel dog fighting with a pure-blooded dog, and the one that you feed the most is the one that wins. But I'm here to tell you today, friends, that old, dirty, mongrel dog is dead. Your old nature, your old self has been crucified with Christ. Past tense, it's finished, it's done. Deader than a doornail. Now, maybe you're thinking, if my old nature is dead, then where is all this sin coming from? I'm still being tempted. I'm still being accused. I'm still being condemned. I'm still being deceived. I'm still falling. And I'm so glad you asked. Because Paul tells us where that's coming from in Romans 7. Romans 7, 17, he says, So now, watch this, it is no longer I who do it. He's separating his identity from this. But sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Can you identify with that? Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Twice in these verses, Paul declares that it is no longer I who do it. It is no longer my identity, my nature, my old self that is doing it. It is, then he tells us what it is. The principle of indwelling sin and the flesh. That's what it is. There's where I hang my sin. Your nature is the... Now, now, here's the question. Why am I making such a big deal about making a distinction between your old nature and the flesh? It's because your, your nature is, is the essence of who you are. The way the word nature is used here in verse 3 is as a description of who we were before we received Christ. Your flesh is an invading enemy in your life. This never takes sin lightly. You know, someone described the principle of indwelling sin as like a, a splinter that's in you. It doesn't, it's not part of who you are, but it's hurting you. Well, I'm here to tell you that it's a lot worse than a splinter. It's more like a cancer inside of you that can devour you and kill you if it's not taken care of. And the reason I believe it's important to make a distinction between your own nature and the flesh is because your nature is the essence of who you are. It's who you are. We always act and live out of who we believe we are. The old self has been crucified with Christ. You don't have to work for a position of victory over, over sin. Now you can work from a position of victory. You are not a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You're not multiple personalities. So what is your new identity? Scripture says you are now a child of the king. You're a member of a royal priesthood. You're a member of a, a holy nation. You are an adopted son or daughter of the king of the universe. Now, if you're the daughter of a king, what is your title? Talk to me. If you're the son of a king, what is your title? Prince Scott. <laughs> How do you like that title? It's good. That's who you are. Now think about Prince William of England. 
Prince William carries himself with such a royal aristocracy because he's the son of King Charles. But think about the fact that he's just the prince of a little island over there in the Atlantic Ocean. My daddy, my king, owns the whole universe. And if he's, he owns the whole universe and he's my daddy and he's my king and I'm his son, then who's more important, you or Prince William? I think you are, whether you believe it or not. When I began believing this, it just changed my life. You know, I, we moved out to California and people said, well, let's go down to Hollywood and see the movie stars. I said, I'm not going down there to see them. They need to come up here and see me. I'm more important than they are. Not because of who I am, but because of whose I am. When Paul addressed the churches in his letters, even the church at Corinth, which was a colossal mess, he addressed them as saints. He didn't say to the sinners in the church of Corinth, to the sinners in the church of Philippi. He said to the saints, you're either a saint or an ain't. A saint is not a dead Roman Catholic. A saint is a living Christian following Jesus. That's who you are. There's nothing in between. So that's who we are. Now let's look at where we are. Verse 6 and 7. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. I love this. You are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. That's where you are. That's not just a positional truth. That's an experiential, experiential truth. You're as good as there. And so someone might come and, and um, say, how are you doing? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm doing pretty bad. Well, keep looking up. But if you're a Christian, you could say, keep looking down. Keep looking down on your problems from your perspective of being with Christ, seated with Christ in the heavenlies. How are you doing today? Well, I'm doing pretty good under the circumstances. What are you doing under there? You're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. And this is our promise. And why is it? Because he says in verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, one of the reasons I'm so passionate about this is because the Lord used these truths. He changed my life through these truths. And you have your own story. But my story is maybe similar to yours. I actually grew up in a very loving and nurturing home. Uh, I was accepted. I was loved. And because of that secure atmosphere that I grew up in, uh, you know, some people wonder if anyone could love them. I, would, I wondered why anyone wouldn't love me. But then I went to school. You step into elementary school, and pretty soon you start figuring out that there is a pecking order of superiority. There are kids at the top of the class all the way down, and then you start wondering, where do I fit into this pecking order? I, I kind of figured it out pretty quickly. I maybe I'm a, I'm a maybe in the top third somewhere up there, but I know I, I knew I wasn't at the top. Why? There's always someone smarter. There's always someone faster. There's always someone bigger. There's always someone stronger. There's always someone more popular. 
And I knew I wasn't at that top of that pecking order. And then you begin experiencing rejection and bullying and all of that stuff. And it just shatters your identity, your self-understanding of who you are. And then you begin wondering, who, who, who am I really apart from my parents? And all through elementary school, middle school, high school, I, I, I was wondering, okay, I know my parents love me, and I, I was wrong about this, but I thought they love me because they have to. But all my friends, they love me because I can be something special to them. Well, my parents didn't love me because they had to. They didn't have to love me, but they did. And I began seeing myself in comparison to my classmates. And, 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 and I began seeing how, where I stacked up. And so it began creating all kinds of doubts in my life. Teenagers, I know you see me as an old man up here, but believe me, my middle school and teenage years, they're vivid in my memory. And I would give anything if I had understood these truths back then so that I wouldn't have to spend so much time wondering and worrying about where I might fit in and, and who might accept me and who would reject me and all that kind of stuff. But I ended up with the four eyes: Inadequate, insignificant, inferior, insecure. That was where I felt. So I'm in the middle of all of this, and I say, okay, I have to do something to prove my significance. What can I do to prove my significance? And so as I began looking around, I thought, okay, I have to do something special outside of class to prove my significance. I know, uh, I'll go out for the track team. I'll be a pole vaulter. Well, pole vaulting, the first goal of a pole vaulter is to clear nine feet. You start out with about six or seven feet, and then you work your way up. It took me my whole first season in the sophomore year, and I finally cleared nine feet, and I checked that off my list, and I quit done that you know then I, I'll get I'll find significance in music and so I joined the band and I began playing the trumpet and I worked and worked and worked and worked all the way up to first chair solo trumpet player in the band that'll give me significance got to the end of my junior year I quit did that done that my band director looked at me when I told him I was going to quit and he said you are a fool I'm wondering how those it's amazing how those words they still come back to you don't they then I said, okay, uh, later. Still got to find significance somewhere. I love camping, backpacking, and so uh, Roger Queen is here today with us, and he, he and I decided to hike the Appalachian Trail. That'll give me some sense of significance. Now, there were many, many good reasons for doing something like that that I will not discount because it was a wonderful experience, but in the back of my mind, it was still I was still trying to prove something. Roger and I had a great experience. We didn't hike every step of the Appalachian Trail. We hitchhiked up through some of the New England states, but we made it from Georgia, Georgia to Maine. I had my bragging rights. Okay, great. And then I went on from there. I got to do, got to do something else. Went out and sold books door to door with the Southwestern Company. You ever seen these college students come knocking on your door in the summertime? I did that. They sent me all the way out to Oklahoma. And I was determined I was going to prove because all of my classmates at college said, you, you won't do this, you'll come home, yeah, you're not going to make any money. They promised us that if we did 30 demonstrations a day and if we sold three sets of books a day and we, took care, we were careful with our expenses, we could take care of all of our living expenses and then when we checked out at the end of the summer, they would, we, could, we could make up to $3,000. 
That's a lot of money back in the 70s. I did everything they told me to do. 30 demonstrations a day, six days a week, took care of my expenses, got back. They cut me a check for $3,008. I took that check, I made a copy of it, put it in my pocket and started walking around campus and all my friends were asking me, how did it go, how did it go, with this skeptical look on their face. And I just took that check out and showed them. Now you, may, you may think some of this stuff is pretty impressive. It is not. It is sick. It's sick. Trying to prove yourself. I needed these truths in my life. And then Ann and I went to seminary and we sat under the teaching of Bill and Annabelle Gillum who taught us these truths about your identity in Christ, who you are in Christ, the security you can have in Christ the significance you can have by who you are in Christ. And I was just crazy enough to believe it. It changed my life. And God infused a new confidence into me that I've never had before. I used to be terrified at the idea of speaking in front of a group of people. If you could see the sermon that they videotaped in my preaching class in seminary, you'd think, how in the world did he ever make it in ministry? You would cringe. You may be cringing now, I don't know. But anyway, um, I believe that what Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There's nothing that he's calling me to do that I can't do. And so this has changed my life. And I'm desperate for people to get a hold of this so that they can step into what the Bible says about who they are. Now, it may take some time and repetition, but I want to just encourage you to keep, keep reading scriptures about this. Keep meditating on it until it sinks in and moves from your head to your heart to your real-life experience. That's why we gave you these cards. Take these cards out, if you will. My identity in Christ. If you don't have a card, would you raise your hand? We want to make sure you all get this because we're going to read it out loud together. Raise your hand so that they can get one to you. And while there's, they're passing these out, I want to mention that we're going to continue this. We need to reinforce it. This coming Saturday, the Steps to Freedom uh, here, we have already have over 30 people signed up for that. Next Saturday morning, Rich Miller will be out in the foyer afterwards, and you can sign up for that. We had five people sign up at the end of the first service today. This will, this will it'll, it'll just free you up. You're going to know the truth. The truth will set you free from hang-ups, habits, whatever. So raise your hand if you don't have one of these. Also, the women's Bible studies, Victory Over the Darkness and Bondage Breaker, that's part of this ministry. That's part of these truths. It needs to be reinforced. Uh, my wife will be out there at the end of this service to sign the ladies up for these classes that are getting ready to start. Now take this out with me. Let's all read it together. Who I am in Christ starting with the first section there, and we'll read them out loud together. Read it with me. I am accepted. I am God's child. I am Christ's friend. I have been justified. I am united with the Lord, one spirit. I am bought with a price. I belong to God. I am a member of Christ's body. I am a saint. I have been adopted as God's child. I have access to God through the Holy Spirit. I have been redeemed and forgiven. I am complete in Christ. I am secure. I am free forever from condemnation. I am assured all things work together for good 
I am free from any charges against me. I cannot be separated from the love of God. I am established, anointed, sealed by God. I am hidden with Christ in God. I am confident that the good work God has begun in me will be perfected. I am a citizen of heaven. I have not been given a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. I can find grace and mercy in time of need. I am born of God. The evil one cannot touch me. I am significant. I am the salt and light of the earth. I am a branch of the true vine. I am a channel of his life. I have been chosen and appointed to bear fruit. I am a personal witness of Christ. I am God's temple. I'm a minister of reconciliation for God. I'm God's co-worker. I'm seated with Christ in the heavenly realm. I am God's workmanship. I may approach God with freedom and confidence. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You believe that? If you're a Christian, it's true. Even if you don't, even if you're struggling. Keep reading it. Look up these scriptures until God moves this from your head to your heart to your experience. My encouragement is let's step into our new identity. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are the righteousness of Christ and through His Spirit, we can start acting like it. You're a saint. So through the power of the Spirit, start acting like it. You're an adopted son or daughter of the King of the universe. So start, tr start trusting Him to help you act like it. You're a prince or a princess of the kingdom of God. Let the Holy Spirit work that out in you so you can act like it. You're a member of a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You can start acting like it. We're victorious over sin. Let the Holy Spirit work in us to act like it. We're accepted in Christ. We can trust the Holy Spirit to help us act like it. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us so we can trust Him to help us and empower us to act like it. Now maybe you realize you're outside of a relationship with Christ this morning. I have some good news for you. You were created in the image of God and every person on this planet deserves to be treated with dignity and respect no matter what, no matter what their past is. That's, that's the good news. The other news is we need a Savior. And if you're outside of a relationship with Christ, you can't experience this new identity that we've been talking about this morning. Look at what you've been missing. Would you come to Jesus today? Today is a day of salvation. We would love to pray with you to receive Christ today and you can step into this new creation, this new identity, this new person that he will make you to be. It's not about who we are. It's about whose we are. When we belong to him, that's what makes all of this happen. Give your life to Jesus today. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the fact that these are not just positional truths. These are not just theories. These are not just nice propositions. They are truth. It is truth. You created us. You gave us the Word of God as our owner's manual, as our instruction manual, and, and in that manual you have defined clearly for us who we are. I pray that we will reject the lies of the enemy this morning who has been speaking condemnation and accusation into us and that we will embrace these truths and trust you. Thank you for that, Jesus. And I pray that if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, 
that they will come to you this morning. In your name, I pray. Amen. And at the end of this service, when we close, there will be some people down here waiting. We would love to pray with you to receive Christ today or any other hang-up that you could like for us to pray with you. We'll be waiting for you.